The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. Where are we on the prophetic calendar? And there's a, a lot of reasons why people are wondering where we're at prophetically. Be, things like uh, the increase in, in natural disasters that we're witnessing in the world today. Many, many things going on. All kinds of natural disasters that we see occurring uh, on a rather regular basis. There's also concern about man-made disasters, the global warming that we're being told that we're the producers of. As well as uh, the, recently we had the Gulf oil spill. And all the concern over how much damage that was going to do to our environment. There's also the financial crisis that began in 2008. And the U.S. was blamed for that crisis. It's because we didn't manage our our credit well enough and our mortgages well enough that we created this whole crisis that's taken in the whole world. There's wars, rumors of wars going on. And uh, the desire that problems today have to be solved globally. They're not not simply... Do nations permit in solving their own problems, but uh, there's a desire to solve our problems globally. All that really is creating this awareness of the apocalypse, the idea that the world cannot continue as it is, and there must be some coming uh, division to it. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ told John that that, uh, there were three divisions to the book of Revelation. I think chapter 1, verse 19 tells us how we're to understand the book of Revelation. He said to John that, uh, in fact, if you have your Bibles, you can open there. Revelation chapter 1. Christ is speaking to John. He says, write the things which you have seen, which I believe is chapter 1, what he's already seen. And the things which are, I believe the things which are was a reflection of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which are the Seven letters to the seven churches, uh, representative of the church age. I think those seven letters represent the church age, and there's different ways that theologians interpret that. But uh, general agreement that the seven churches uh, are representative of the church age. And then thirdly, he says here, and the things which will take place after this. Notice that he says these are things which will take place, not that they might take place or they could take place, but there's a definite sense in what Christ is saying here. Now, if you flip over to chapter 4, verse 1, this ties in so well to the third statement there in verse 19 of chapter 1, where he says, And after these things I looked, this I being John there, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. God says to John, he is to come up to heaven because he's going to show him things that will occur, which must take place after this. We have to, of course, ask the question, what's he mean by this? The simplest understanding of that would be what previously occurred, the church age. I think it's one of the pointers to the fact that the rapture will occur before what occurs beginning in chapter 4 and following in Revelation. And so God then reveals the rest of the book of Revelation to John with the understanding that these things must take place. God has determined that they will take place. Israel, if you want to understand the prophetic calendar, where things have been and where they are going, Israel is the key to understanding all of that. God has a different program for Israel than he has for the church. He has a unique program for Israel. He has a different program for Israel than he has for the Gentiles. 
It is so distinct and different that it gives us the understanding. It's through Israel that we come to understand what God's prophetic calendar is and where the events are on the calendar. Last night in the talk on uh, uh, whether 2012 was the end of the world, I finished up by taking you through Daniel chapter 9. We went through uh, the 70-week prophecy that Gabriel gave to Daniel. And if you remember, Daniel was told that uh, this prophecy was for the Jewish people and for the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, that for, there were 70 weeks that God had determined for the Jewish people. Uh, the beginning of those 70 weeks was with the decree here by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. to rebuild Jerusalem. And, uh, and it was a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is a total of 69 weeks or 483 years that would culminate with the uh, coming of the Messiah, and that, that by the time those weeks ended, Messiah would be here. And that's exactly what, what occurred. We know that uh, the 69 weeks ended on Palm Sunday of the uh, year in which Jesus Christ died, the month in which he died. As uh, he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey that day, and the multitudes uh, praise him. That was the completion of the 69-week prophecy. But remember, it's 70 weeks, not 69 weeks. We're told there in Daniel chapter 9, the Messiah, after the 69 weeks, would be cut off. Cut off is a reference, it's the terminology that's commonly used to refer to uh, those who are imprisoned or guilt, found guilty of offenses, that would, capital punishment, that they would be put to death. And so that Messiah would be cut off with, with nothing. In other words, because the Jewish people had rejected him and his offer of the kingdom, he would die, but not by being able to usher in the kingdom. And so that's 32 AD. Now, I gave you a little test when I was talking last night. I'm, I... Uh, I said something that was incorrect by two years. Did you catch it? Last night toward the end of of what I was saying, I said that the earliest that the world could end would be 3019. But that would only be true if I was talking from 2012. And from today, it would be 3015. So here's my chance to make it up to you. Let's do a little math. Sometimes people come up and say, you know... The problem I have with the 69 weeks of 483 years is that if you take the number of years from 445 B.C. to 32 A.D., you don't get 483 years. You get 476 years. So how can you say the prophecy was fulfilled exactly as God said when it really didn't take the full 483 years? Well, let's take a look at that. If you go from the the decree... Uh, issued by King Artaxerxes was issued on March 14th of 445 B.C. Palm Sunday, the year that Christ died, the end of these 69 weeks is April 6th of 32 A.D. There is a way to understand and reconcile all this, and it begins by understanding what a Jewish calendar was. A Jewish calendar consisted of 360 days, not 365, as we keep our calendars. And so if you take those 69 weeks times 7 years of 483 years and multiply those by 360 days, you get 173,880 days. That's how many days are in the 69 weeks that God prophesied of the 483 years. We follow a different calendar. It's called a Gregorian calendar that is based on 365 days a year. So, if you take the time period from 435 B.C. to 3280, that's 476 years. And if we multiply that by 365 days, we get 173,740 days. Close, but not quite the same number of days. 
Oh, but wait a minute. What about leap year? There's 116 leap years during this period of time, and there's an extra day in each one of those years. So we have to add those days in. And then if you notice, we're going from March 14th to April 6th. That's a period of 24 days that have to also be added in. And guess what you come out with when you add all those up? Same number of days. So God was, was true when he said it would take 69, years, 400, or 69 weeks, 483 years. It does really line up with our Gregorian calendar because it's a different period of years. We know it's 360 days because that's the way uh, the scriptures count days. When we we're told about 300 and, um, or three and a half years is 1,260 days. That's a 360-day year calendar. Consistently, the scriptures uh, count uh, years as 360 days. Well, Daniel tells us then that there is a prince who will come from the people that destroyed the temple. The temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans, right? Remember your, your history. And, um, and so the prince that is going to come. Now, the period in between the 69th and 70th week is a period that we're still in called the church age. Many times people in the church think that the church age will just continue until Christ's second coming and then the new heavens, new earth. Many people today believe that. But the scriptures teach that the church is going to be taken out during the rapture. With 1 Corinthians 15 as well as 1 Thessalonians 4 two of the key passages that give us indication that the church is going to be caught up into the heavens and that that will occur before uh, the tribulation period begins, the 70th week of Daniel. And uh, my uncle this morning and yesterday was, was talking about that and giving excellent explanation as to why that will occur and, and that the church is not given to wrath, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The wrath of the day of the Lord is not appointed for the church. And in fact, it's part of the process of God bringing about the great apostasy on this earth in a very short period of time is the removal of the church. And that will help uh, feed that growth of apostasy. And so we have a cloud here in a little chart, that's, and you, you will find that chart inside the back panel. There, your front panel, uh, if you want to look at it. It's on the back side there. The reason the little cloud is there because Jesus Christ does not come back all the way to earth. He meets us in the air, does he not? And so there he is coming down, meeting us in the air, and taking us so that where he is from that point on, we will always be with him. Initially back to heaven. Is our eternal state in heaven? No, it's not. It's in the new heavens and new earth. We think in terms of, of living in heaven a long time, uh, if we are alive during the rapture, our days in heaven will be about seven years, according to Scripture, right? Because we will come back with Christ, rule and reign with him here on the earth during the millennial kingdom, and then go on to the new heavens and new earth with him and, and live in the new Jerusalem. All right, then we have the one week, the seven years of Daniel uh, 9 is, is the last week, the 70th week, a period of seven years called referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble broken into two three-and-a-half-year periods of time. Um, we know that covenant is a seven-year covenant in which the first three-and-a-half years the Antichrist will honor that covenant. He will provide protection. When the kings of the north and south come up against Israel, he will be there to defend Israel. But it's after that point, at the midpoint, that he will break the covenant. He will put an end to the worship of sacrifices in the temple. He will establish and, and, and declare himself to be God, to be worshipped here upon earth, set up his own image, and uh, and. He will be worshipped, and uh, that will be the only religion permitted during that time here on earth. And that period of time will continue for another three and a half years until Messiah returns. 
time of great persecution for Israel as well as uh, great terror and, and wrath by God upon all of the world during that last three and a half years. Certainly a time in which nobody will really want to be alive on the earth during that time. A time of great tribulation and turmoil. And then with Christ's return, we'll, we'll establish the millennial kingdom. So we are somewhere today to answer the simple question, where are we at? We're somewhere here in the church age, haven't come to the rapture yet. But there is a, a growing sense amongst people that God is setting the table for the coming rapture of the church in the, the, the uh, tribulation period here on earth. How soon it'll be before he's finished setting this table, we don't know. But you know, I remember you know, as a child, one of the things you look forward to in holidays, of course, are the feasts, when, when everybody's gathered around the table and you, you have a great time. And one of the ways you, you mark when that's going to occur, the, the big feast that you always have the holiday, for example, Thanksgiving. I was a kid who used to watch the table and it would begin to fill up with dishes. And then you'd start looking for things like the rolls and the relish dishes, and you knew it was getting closer to the meal, right? And then the salads would come, and then the hot dishes. Boy, when the hot dishes came, you knew that you are going to be eating very soon. We're watching God set a prophetic table today with some of the events going on. And the number of events that are going on, the things we're seeing, indicate that it could be soon. God brings about uh, the rapture of the church and ultimately the beginning of the tribulation period here on earth. I do want to be very careful, though, in saying this tonight. One of the, one of the ways that we get ourselves in trouble when we talk about prophecy and, and get criticized for validly is when we go too far and begin speculating. When we begin teaching and, and proclaiming things that the Word of God does not say, we've gone too far. And so I'm going to present to you some of the things I see going on in the world today that I think are, are, are table setting, God's doing. But I have to also acknowledge that he could still be years away from the end of, of this age in the beginning of the next age, the, the day of the Lord judgment. Well, one of the first things that we see on the table sitting there that's been placed on the table is the rebirth of the modern nation of Israel. Israel began in 1948, and it came out of the shadows of the Holocaust. Uh, that was the greatest argument that David Ben-Gurion made before the UN Council when they came to investigate what should be done with Israel, was that if the Jewish people didn't have their own land and their own nation in which they could defend themselves, where could they ever live in the world and be safe? And that, and that argument carried great sway because of the Holocaust. The world was still coming to grips with the tremendous... Uh, genocide that occurred against the Jewish people, uh, hatred of man against man. And so Israel becomes a nation. God promised that he would regather Israel in Isaiah 11. He says it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left and gather together to disperse from Judah from the four corners of the earth. In Ezekiel, he says, for I will take from you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And then there's this very interesting verse in Isaiah 66. I think it has its ultimate fulfillment after the tribulation period. But, but listen to what uh, Isaiah says. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? He's reflecting upon a nation suddenly coming into existence in one day. And yet that's exactly what happened back on May 14th, 1948. Israel went from being a non-nation to a nation in one day. 
as, uh, as they became a nation. Picture here of David Ben-Gurion at Independence Hall in, in Tel Aviv, which you can visit today if you go to Israel. Uh, this is now a museum that you can go to. We've been there. We take our trips there sometimes when we go to Israel. Where uh, David Ben-Gurion showed up late in the afternoon on May 14th. Uh, he thought he would sneak in so there wouldn't be too big a crowd because they feared the danger that could occur. And when he got there, the streets were filled with people could hardly get into the building. The people were so excited about becoming a nation again. And here he reads the declaration that Israel was a nation. It's important for many reasons that Israel be a nation. But before, remember Daniel 9.27, it says that uh, the, the prince of the people who shall destroy the temple, he shall make a covenant with many. In order for, and that's a reference to Israel, in order for Israel to make a covenant with Antichrist, it has to be a nation. It can't be spread out all over the world. Uh, it must become a nation again. And so we see that God has already set that upon the table of, of, uh, of prophecy. The second uh, thing we see setting on the table is a move towards globalization. We know that Antichrist is going to arise out of this confederation of ten kingdoms or regions that Daniel 2 and 7 describes, a revived Roman Empire. We don't know exactly what that looks like, whether it's just ten nations or whether it's ten regions of the world, but we know it's a revival of the Roman Empire through Gentile nations. And uh, the implications of a revived Roman Empire are this. First of all, that the Gentile nations will come together in some form of alliance for some kind of a, a unified world government. And secondly, the national security of these nations are going to be sacrificed for the good of the world. The, the thing that keeps today from the nations of the world getting together and forming a world government is national sovereignty. You have to sacrifice your national sovereignty if you're going to accomplish that. It means you have to give up things that you would do that would be for your own benefit in order to do what you think is for the benefit of the world. Give you an example of that. You've heard of a piece of legislation called cap and trade. It's the idea that they want to tax you for being so greedy and using carbon fuels and turn around and give that money to countries that don't use as much carbon fuel. Right? So that's the idea of giving up. Is it wrong for us to burn carbon-based fuels? No. But there are those who say, yeah, it is. And, and really, in order for the good of the world, we need to sacrifice. That's giving up our national sovereignty in order uh, for the benefit of the world. Do you know how many of the problems today are being cast in terms of being global problems? What you may not understand when you hear that is that there are three underlining presumptions when they say global. The first one is that the global problem is the result of actions of people in different countries. For example, global warming. Global warming is the result of us supposedly using too many carbon-based fuels. And uh, when they take and extend that thinking out, they, they look at other sources too. I, I remember reading a few months back, they said that uh, they determined that the, um, the methane gas that comes off of the excrements from cows is car helping the global warming, so we're going to have to have less cows. Well... There you go. But the idea is that because of the results of actions of people in different countries, those actions have impacted the lives of everyone in the world. Therefore, the remedy has to involve a global response or correction to those ac actions. And that means no one single nation can solve the problems. It requires the world coming together and deciding how these problems should be solved. And here's a number of the problems that they see facing the world today, the environment 
global warming, the idea that man is causing this environment to warm, and if we don't do something about it, it's going to warm to a point where man won't be able to live upon this earth. Economic and financial crisis, what occurred in 2008 and is continuing even through this day today. There's great uncertainty in not just the United States but in the world about our economy and where it's going and how stable things are and whether our credit markets are stable. There's uh, natural disasters that, that are of great concern. There's dependence upon carbon-based fuels. The idea that they would like to get us off carbon-based fuels, that's part of the reasoning behind the cap-and-trade legislation to tax you for using carbon-based fuels, coal and gas and oil and those kind of fuels. They want to tax you so that you'll have incentive to find other sources of fuel than carbon-based fuels like solar energy. The uncertainty of, of the U.S. dollar. Are you aware that the U.S. dollar is under attack, that, that many nations today would like to see uh, the U.S. dollar put, done away with as far as the currency by which the international markets trade? You know, things are valued in dollars. How, how much is a, is a barrel of oil worth? It's given in dollars, right? And, and that is the currency that is used internationally in trading. There are many countries today, and, this, and, the, and the noise about this is growing, they want to get away from the U.S. dollar. They want to move into a true national, international currency that's not tied to any one nation's currency. Also, the national debt of governments. You remember, it was just a couple of months ago that everybody was concerned about what was going to happen in Greece, especially the EU. National debts are a big issue. Look at this chart. This chart shows the first column of numbers here is the deficit to the GDP. Deficit would be the amount of money that the government spends beyond what it takes in, GDP is a gross domestic product. That's the amount of production in, in, in goods and services that a country generates within a year's time. You, and you can see how every country on this list is running a deficit, the, the best being Argentina, at just half a percent. And then you get down here, here's the United States, 10.9%, the UK, 10.9%. So that's the amount of deficit that each of these countries is running. The next column of numbers is the debt. That's the accumulated deficits over all the years of running a deficit, is the amount of debt to the gross domestic product. They say a country is really seriously in trouble when it goes over 100% of its GDP. You don't really want to even be there, but if you get there, you're, you're in serious trouble. Down here was Greece. They were 124% debt to GDP. So you understand why they were in serious trouble. The United States is right here in the middle of the pack, 69%. But that number is a little deceptive, and let me tell you why. That number is only the national uh, budget. It does not include things like uh, the underfunding of, of certain national pensions. And all of the states that run a deficit, I live in the state of New Jersey. They're something like $30-plus billion in debt as a state. Look at California. They're even further in debt. When we add all those in, we come up to 95% of national debt to our gross domestic product. It's a serious, serious thing for the United States. And I don't know if you heard this, this uh, saw the headline this week, but uh, a group has come out, done a study, and determined that our current administration has spent more money in the first year and eight months that they've been in office than the combined national deficits of all the presidents from President George Washington to President Ronald Reagan. That's a long period of time. 
in such a short period of time that our current administration has spent more than all of those presidencies combined. An amazing statistic. The foundation, I believe, today is being laid for a global world government. Uh, take, take a look at the agenda of the G20. The G20 is the 19 largest economic nations in the world today, plus the EU. So that's how we get to 20. Each has a seat or a part in the G20. Uh, they have determined that the solution to our economic problems and the, the crisis that we got ourselves into is the financial reforms that, that really require global standards. So they've adopted uniform regulations and bylaws governed by the Financial Stability Board. Now, these regulations are being written right now. This board was created back April of last year. The G20 got together. All of the governments, including the United States, agreed to create this board to set standards by which they will do commerce going forward and all agreed to adopt those standards once they are established. The U.S. has one seat on that council. Uh, The EU really has control of it. They have half of the seats between individual member nations plus a seat for the EU. So there is this... this, um, coordinated fiscal and economic policy that's going on between the G20 and and many many of the member nations here are moving toward replacing the U.S. dollar with a one-world currency, an idea that we could create a currency that isn't the currency of any individual nation, but rather a currency that all nations would use to trade in. That really becomes important when you look at Revelation 13 and the the second beast, uh, the the false prophet, and how he is, is through the false prophet, the Antichrist is going to require the world to all trade using the sign of the beast. You need to have control of the world currency markets to be able to enforce such a thing. And we see it moving definitely in that direction. So where does the United States fit into the end times? That's a question we get wherever we go. Common question. We hardly ever speak without that question coming up. One thing we do know that the U.S. is not prominently mentioned anywhere in prophetic scripture. So the U.S. could become part of the revived Roman Empire. That's certainly one possible answer to that. We could also have to recognize the U.S. could lose its position as the world power today, either because of economic or because of military crisis. But there's another thing I want you to consider. The U.S. may never recover from the loss of people that occurs during the rapture of the church. The United States is the most Christianized nation on the face of the earth today. And even though majority of people in America are not Christians, we have more Christians per capita than any other nation. I don't know exactly what that number is. I hear different numbers thrown around. Uh, and it could be, if we have 325 to 350 million people in this country today, you know, sometimes you hear numbers of evangelical Christians, 40 million, 60 million, 70 million, and that doesn't count Protestant Christians uh, I don't know exactly what that number is, but let's just do a simple calculation. Let's be conservative say only 10% of the people in America are Christians. And I believe it's higher than that. But let's say it was only 10. If we have 300 million people in this country, that would be 30 million people suddenly gone like that. Think about the impact that's going to have on this country. I mean, we remember the impact of losing 3,000 people suddenly in one morning on September 11th had a tremendous economic impact. Remember what it did to our spirit as a nation? And a, uh, a rapture that takes out all the Christians is going to touch every cross-section of our nation, our economy. It's going to affect the military. It's going to affect the government. Yeah, there are Christians in government. Yes, there are. <laughs> it's going to affect business, right? It's going to affect every aspect 
of American life is going to be touched by the rapture. More than I believe any other nation. And I think that may have a lot to do with what happens to the United States and where it could suddenly become a non-issue worldwide. Another question is, in this move toward globalism, is the Antichrist alive today? That is another question we're asked commonly. I want you to think about this. Christ said in Matthew 24, but of the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, and talking about the coming future kingdom, right? The events that are yet to come, Jesus Christ said nobody knows, not even the angels. That's God the Father's to know. So if you think about that in terms of the history of the world, nobody, not even Satan, knows when the tribulation is going to begin, right? Do you know when it's going to begin? If you do, I'd caution you about setting a date. Everybody historically who set a date so far has been wrong. And some consistently keep resetting the date. I think if I set the date and I was wrong, the last thing I'd want to do is stand up and say, okay, I was wrong, but trust me this time. If Satan doesn't even know when the tribulation will begin, it means this, that Satan has to be ready at any time for his lawless one to be revealed. And we know that that can't occur, and my uncle dealt with this so wonderfully you know, yesterday and this morning especially, that, that that cannot happen until he who restrains is taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit's ministry of restraining evil has, has to be removed first. And I think that, I agree with my uncle, I think that uh, coincides with the rapture of the church, being, the church being taken out of the world. Satan has to be ready throughout every period of history to have his man of lawlessness who can be revealed. And so there is a man, I believe, today alive that could be the Antichrist, but because I do not know when the tribulation began, I cannot tell you if he is here on the earth because there is only one man who would be the man of lawlessness. And that man God will reveal in his own time when he's ready. There is also, we see, a drive for religious unity that's going on. Uh, we see lots of things occurring within religious circles. We're seeing drive toward dialogues between different religions like Jewish and Muslim. We see a move away from doctrinal distinctiveness, the idea that we must be inclusive. We need to include everybody in. And so therefore, the only way doctrine divides, did you know that? That's what they tell us. Doctrine divides, and so we can't take a stand on doctrine. We must lay aside our doctrinal differences so we can all come together and work together. Uh, that's called inclusiveness. Evangelicals and Christian or Catholics together was an initiative began uh, 10, 12 years ago uh, that we've seen happening. Defining the gospel, this is a big one, defining the gospel message in terms of social justice, kingdom now theology is, is really very popular in many, many churches today uh, in, in many realms. And just pluralism in general, the idea that all roads lead to heaven. I believe this drive for religious unity is just another thing that is setting on a table. Another dish we see on the table is the rise of Gog and Magog alliance in this table setting. Iran today is developing this alliance against the nation of Israel. It includes nations like Syria and Turkey as well as uh, groups like Hezbollah that are occupying and controlling Lebanon, Hamas, and Fatah in Israel. Uh, terrorist groups, this, this great alliance against Israel. One of the things that we note is that it is theologically driven by Islam, the belief in the coming Messiah and the world domination of the Muslim faith. 
is, is really philosophically or theologically what's behind their actions and what they're doing. Also, there is this growing alliance between Iran and Russia. Uh, they are signing agreements and cooperatively working together in mar- many areas for, for not only military and defense, but for economic reasons, for technology reasons. That becomes important when you turn to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Remember Ezekiel 38 and 39? David was referencing it this morning. Uh, the, the Battle of Gog and Magog, the military invasion that is going to be led by Russia and Iran, but involves other nations such as Libya, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Turkey. All these nations are pro-Islamic or Islamic nations. They will invade Israel at a time, according to Ezekiel, when Israel is living in peace and dwelling safely. Ezekiel talks about uh, living in unwalled villages. Throughout most of history, until about the last 100, 150 years, if you had a village, the way you protected it was you built a wall. Uh, And, of course, the thing that defeated walls was uh, the development of gunpowder and and missiles and so forth that could reach over the walls and destroy walls. And so uh, most of our cities today, we don't don't build a wall around. But the idea of of living in an unwalled village is the idea of living in peace so that you don't need walls because you have peace. If you're at peace and you're not being threatened, there's no need for a wall. And that's what Ezekiel is saying. These nations are coming to annihilate Israel to take her her, uh, blessing, her wealth. You know, so we've mentioned a couple books here, The Israel Test and uh, Startup Nation, two books that are identifying the incredible economic miracle that's going on in Israel today. Israel, even during this last two years when most nations are struggling economically, is growing economically. They, they are a unique nation to all the nations in the world. God is blessing that nation economically, and they are making a mark on the world. And, and don't be... Uh, deceived into thinking that the world looks at that and says, oh, isn't that wonderful? Many in the world will be jealous of what is going on and want to see Israel destroyed. Listen to the words of Iran's president, um, Ahmad Beginning back in 2005, he said, Israel must be wiped off the map. In 2006, he said, Israel is destined for destruction and will soon disappear. He also said, a new Middle East will prevail without the existence of Israel. 2007, he said, by God's will, we will witness the destruction of this regime, Israel, in the near future. In 2008, he says, we will witness the dismantling of the corrupt regime, Israel, in the the very near future. Last year, he was saying that the uniform shout of the Iranian nation is forever death to Israel. And And this year, he said, with God's grace, this regime, Israel, will be annihilated, and Palestinians and other regional nations will be rid of its bad omen. You can see what he's bent upon, the destruction and elimination of the nation of Israel. You know, the, the mindset of Amonjah today is not any different than those that lived during the days of Asaph when he wrote Psalm 83. He said, they have taken crafty counsel against your people. He's talking to God. They have consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come, let us Cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. There have been people upon the face of this earth in different generations that have desired to eliminate the Jewish people. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. In Ezekiel 38, we see this playing out again. This this confederacy designed to eliminate the Jewish people. But God tells us in Ezekiel 38 that as the armies prepare to invade Israel, he's going to strike them down. He would use different natural forces to bring about their destruction. He will utterly destroy the armies of Gog and Magog. 
One additional thing we're seeing that is setting on this prophetic table is mounting pressure upon Israel. Increasingly, the world is turning against Israel. The new rise in anti-Semitism that's called anti-Zionism, and Bill referred to that in what he was sharing with us the last couple of days. Anti-Zionism, the idea that this world would be better if Israel didn't exist. It's, you know, and they, they, they craft it in such a way to say, we're not against the Jewish people. You know, it's okay for the Jewish people to exist. It's just a problem for them to be a nation. So Israel's seen as incapable of doing anything just. They are an unjust nation. The argument goes something like this. If we're ever going to have peace, we have to get Israel to lay down its arms. If we could just disarm Israel, we could have peace. Israel is the cause of terrorism. Israel is the cause of violence. Israel is the cause of hatred. And so there's pressure being put on Israel to disarm its nuclear weapons. Back in May of this year, the UN had a conference on the uh, non-proliferation treaty at the UN. During this treaty, they proposed a resolution calling for a conference sometime by the year 2012 to discuss a nuclear-free Middle East. The one country they identified as having nuclear weapons that needed to disarm, and only one country, was Israel. No mention of Iran. And the amazing thing about what what occurred there is, in the past, historically, the U.S. has always voted on an issue in favor of Israel. For the first time ever as a nation, our current administration voted against Israel and voted for that resolution. This growing anti-Semitism could help fuel the rise of nations that we read in the scriptures referred to as Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon that will occur at the end of the tribulation. In the books of Joel and, and Revelation, we read about this battle in which God will bring the nations of the world together in one final climatic battle against Israel that leads up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And certainly that could be part of what's at work here. But there's another possibility that this mounting pressure may also create an open door for an Antichrist when he comes upon the scene to seize this idea that if Israel would just disarm, then we could have peace. You know, most ideas begin as a little seed. You plant a seed, you give it time to be watered and to to grow, and eventually it grows into something substantial. The idea, the seed has been planted that Israel, if we could get rid of Israel's weapons, if we could get not just rid of their nuclear weapons, but get them to lay down all their weapons, we could have peace. I can see a world leader seizing upon that idea and saying, I'm the man that can make that happen, and guaranteeing Israel that if they will lay down their weapons, he will protect them. He will ensure that they will not be attacked, and that if they are, he will be there to defend Israel. There are many, many events we see being set on the table of prophetic future history. God is setting the table. I don't know how soon it's going to be before God uh, brings about the rapture of the church in the beginning of the day of the Lord here upon the earth. But I do know that Israel is the key to understanding what's going on. It's why we pay such attention to Israel. Because Israel is God's nation, his chosen people through which he is accomplishing his plan. If you want to understand what's going on in the future, if you want to know where we're at in a prophetic calendar, you have to follow the nation of Israel. And there's no better place to turn to begin that study 
than the book of Daniel chapter 9. Because Daniel lays out the 70 weeks that if you follow those 70 weeks, give you the indication of what yet God is planning to do here upon the earth.